This city is all about sharing memories of wonderful London and that's why I'm even more excited to be working with one of my most favourite brands for this series. When I tell you that Instax are the instant photo people and their cameras and smartphone printers are super easy to use, I mean it. They are perfect because we all know that the best memories need to be captured in the moment. And I'm definitely talking from experience here because I've had an Instax camera for years and everyone who comes to visit my home, there's a rule. You must take an Instax photo and stick it in my guest book. It is one of my all time favorite things. Life is meant to be shared and I love, love, love that I've captured those moments with my friends and family forever. So whether you want to keep and treasure your pics like I do, give them away to loved ones to reminisce on a special time or one better, gift an Instax camera or printer, you can find out more at instax.co.uk. Hello, I'm Clara Ampho and welcome back to This City, the podcast where we talk to famed inhabitants of wonderful London. Each episode will delve into the past favourite places, the current favourite places, the dance spots, the food spots, the night bus stories, stories of school where we fell in love from some of our favourite famous faces, whether they were born here or adopted our capital. It's that time, a new episode of This City where we celebrate London's most loved and iconic names and somebody who I feel is definitely loved and most certainly iconic is our next guest. She is a model, an activist, a truth seeker um, and she's easily one of the most bravest and incredible people I've ever met and who, uh, yeah, I have the privilege of calling my friend, um, the wonderful... Munro Bergdorf. Welcome to this city. Oh, and now published author, <laughs> lest we forget. Published author, <laughs> British Vogue contributor. Let me get all the accolades in. Munro, it's you, my love. Hello. Thank you. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. Yeah. Bit of a crazy month. Um, lots coming up, but really excited. I mean, my love, it is, it's all happening. Um, so dear listener, by the time you hear this, you may already have a ticket and you might be seeing us in conversation or you might be coming back to this after you see us in chat because um, I'm going to be discussing what I'm holding in my hand right now, um, which is Aww. a cheeky copy of Munro's book. It's called Transitional um, and it has been a labour of love. Now, what this what this conversation is not going to be is a blow-by-blow account of a book because I tell you what, you can buy <laughs> buy it how about that uh, yes. today tonight our conversation today is a celebration of Monroe and her journey in London but again get into her book transitional because it is fab today is all about you find yourself in and around London so Monroe um I always like to start the chat or go or find the point where we first met in London and I'm trying to remember where you and I first met face to face and I think correct me if I'm wrong was it in the club probably you know what I've got the worst memory thank you for that plug by the way (laughs) I, I appreciate that um god where was it I think it was probably at an event or something 
Yeah, I've got a really clear memory of you. I just remember you with your long blonde box braids and Mm -hmm. you were in some sort of like pink negligee like type dress and a black strappy shoe. I just remember that look on you. Where that was, who's to say? But that's what you were wearing. Wait a minute, Was was it at a club night, a rave called Pussy Palace? Do you know what? It might have been at Pussy Palace. I think but, it was. Yes. And this was a this was on um, the strip in Dolson. So for anybody listening that's familiar with the area or anybody yeah. not, because that's the point of this podcast, everyone is welcome. It was at a little club on the strip in this place called Dolston in East London. Uh, and uh, it, but this was before it moved to like its bigger venue. And I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. you were DJing actually. I think I was. Listen, my memory, it's like a... It's not like a goldfish. I've got a good memory because I really don't. (laughs) I mean, how do you go about writing a book when your memory isn't that great, actually? Answer me that if you can. (laughs) Well, it took four years, so... (laughs) Um, I think I've got a good memory when when it's triggered. When I, you know, really take myself back to, um, like spaces and like moments in time and really try to like delve into what I was getting up to at that point it's easier to remember but it has been quite difficult um (laughs) you know really writing your life story it's it's a real mindset it's um it's it's really bizarre it's a really tough place to put yourself in obviously because every single era comes with its own challenges and you relive a lot of stuff that maybe you don't really want to remember and the mind really does protect you a lot so there's so much that I'd really just kind of omitted but it's really been such an amazing process and I've been able to look at it from a different perspective because so much of the book takes place in you know young adulthood and adolescence and childhood and I'm a different person now obviously Um, Um, So looking at my journey through adult eyes has been um, a real labor of love. And I've been able to like hug myself at different points of my life and, you know, revisit um, different situations and get in touch with people that I'd lost contact with and, you know, relive like nights out. And, um, you know, it's just been really, um, really hard, but really, really worthwhile. I do you know I can hear the um the warmth in your voice as you uh yeah. as you say that. It- yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really really hard and writing it during lockdown when I didn't have access to like, you know, friends, community, family um was really really tough. But you know, I I just feel like it's like therapy. You, you don't really look forward to going to therapy, but you get so much out of it. That's so true. That is so true. Like, I mean, don't, I know people that do look forward to going to therapy, and I, my times, have felt have looked forward to going to therapy. There are sometimes I'm just like, I really, I really don't want to do this. But yeah, like you say, you never regret it. So, Munro, you and this city, um, talk to me about your first impressions of London, and if so, can you remember with that with that. Uh, temperamental memory of yours the first time you ever visited London oh god the first time I well I spent a lot of my childhood in London uh, because both my parents worked here when I was a kid so um, I would often come to work with my dad or my mum and um, I come my mum worked in um, Tottenham um, 
at the beginning and then my dad worked all over my dad was a carpenter so he would kind of go wherever the work took him so a lot of it was really just spent in my parents offices or like looking at London from my dad's van and I think I just always associated London with, you know, where I was eventually going to end up. There was such a level of certainty that I was going to move to London one day. Um, I grew up in a really, really rural area. So um, London just felt like a world of difference. Um, just looking out as well and just seeing, you know, there was like no people of colour where I grew up. So coming to London and just seeing so much um, diversity and so many different kinds of people just felt really, really good. Um, and it always gave me something to aim to. And I'm so glad that I had those moments in London when I was a kid, because thank God I knew that the world was not like where I grew up. I mean, I think my first impression was that London really was, um, it offered kind of hope for me. Uh, I, I felt, I feel like it really, provided a way out. I really wasn't that happy where I grew up. Um, just cause I was so different from so many other people there. Uh, so yeah, London really offered a way out and I think it encouraged me to dream a little bit more, mm. um, and know that the world was bigger than, uh, my hometown. That's so interesting. Um, two things like, you mentioned, you know, yourself being the only person of colour, well, pretty much one of the only people of colour, or just, mm. let, let me not, let me not, uh, let me not miss, uh, use your words. You said that there weren't very many, or, or were you literally like the only one? What Very few and far between. There was, there, there was more South Asian people than there were um, black people. I think there was like, I mean, I only think, I think I only met like four black people, um, apart from my family in the whole time that I lived there. But um, there was there was a, there was a fair amount of um, uh, people from other areas, but like not really. They were um, there was a man that ran the corner shop. There was um, you know the restaurants and things like that, but like not really anybody of my own age. What I would like to know is where did you first go in London where you saw mm. people that looked like you and like, do you remember what that felt like? What that, what that looked like? Like where, 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 where did you go? So I first started going out in London when I was, oh God, probably like 17, like sneaking out and going into clubs and things like that. <laughs> um, so I think it was really around then. And it was the cross sections, the intersections of, you know, being um, black, queer, um, and also, you know, feminine. I think that that was something that I really um, had an experience. There was such a, you know, contingency that you had to be like, not feminine <laughs> if you were like black and gay um so it it was yeah it was it was great to see people that i could see myself in and to experience um although it wasn't really necessarily in the way that i really really needed but it was just like a really great entry point um in going out um and you know just seeing and experiencing and having fun and you know, experiencing joy with people that I could see myself in. And where was this? 
it was Soho. So yeah, I, I first started going out in Soho and this was during the heyday of Soho. So Soho has changed a lot over the years and now, you know, it's it's, it's still cute, but I mean, it's very corporate. Um, it's It's not really the same as what it was back in the day. It was very hedonistic. It was very, you know, um, risque. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that happened in Soho that were, you know, just, <laughs> yeah, eyebrow raises. So, uh, <laughs> um, but I think it was, it was that almost like glamorous seediness that really um, was so iconic there's so many stories from my generation of people that, you know, found themselves in Soho. Um, and um, just the anything goes mentality that I talk about in my book is something that I really, really needed um, because for so long I'd been made to feel like I was, um, you know, seedy, that there was, you know, I mean, what is seedy? Um, in the eyes of society, you know, my generation of um, queer people, my my generation, millennials, we were raised underneath Section 28. And to be openly gay was, you know, inherently seedy in the eyes of the government. So um, I think it was just great to kind of be in such a environment that really challenge the status quo people just wore what they wanted to wear um you know you'd bump into like I had nights out with Pete Burns and it was just like oh wow yeah, it was just like very very um just like kind of just people just didn't give a fuck people just really just went for it and enjoyed themselves and, and where were you living these times what was your what was your setup because Mamre, I know you, you didn't come to London with like you know a big old like nepo baby fund like that's not your <laughs> so when I moved to London I was in my early 20s so I was about 22 and I was I was working at a uh, fashion PR agency so I was really working really, 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 really hard. I was like working eight till eight every single day and commuting um, initially from my parents' house um, in Stansted. And then um, after three months, I got promoted and then I lived in uh, Bow. I really didn't have any money. I was living in a house share with five other people. And we all worked in fashion in one way or another. Some people worked for Burberry. Some people were stylists. Some people were designers. And, you know, we were all kind of moving in the same circle and all really egging each other on to be successful. I'm really, really glad that I, I moved in with those people because um, just being immersed in the fashion scene at that time really enabled me to make connections and uh, just dream big and get a good idea about how the industry actually functioned. Well, and this is the thing, because now you're somebody who's a front row fixture at London Fashion Week. And you've gone you've gone from being the person, you know, writing the press releases to being the person that, you know, that, that is featured in them, which I think that, that must be, is that a bit of a head fuck for you? It's wild, but I'm so glad that I worked my way up. I was actually doing a talk the other day um, with Edward Enfall and um, oh. yeah, our good friend Edward. And uh, I was just thinking, you know, I really worked in so many different areas of this industry from PR 
to uh, working as a photographer's assistant, to working at a magazine, to working with a stylist, to modeling, to writing. Um, so I, I, I'm really glad that I got a really real 360 view about how the industry works. But yeah, it's, it's, it's wild to be in this position, but it's completely unplanned. I mean, I wanted to... I wanted to be creative and modeling was really my way to do that. But I don't think I ever really necessarily wanted to be a model. It just kind of happened by accident. Um, mm. And I never really saw myself as a model um, in the traditional sense. It was more about um, providing like visibility and, you know, wanting to be part of the industry, wanting to be creative. And it all just kind of, happened <laughs> well I think what's really interesting about you and how I've seen you use particular events like London Fashion Week I know just and just using essentially like you know your corporeal self like your body like you've used it in such a beautiful and also equally like political way and I think people can often um, dismiss fashion as being quite a, a frivolous thing but I think you've been able to really allow people to to see it differently would you would you agree with that I hope so. I mean, that's that was the goal. And um, I, you know, if anybody thinks of fashion as a frivolous industry, I think that really we need to, you know, understand the the way in which fashion and beauty function within society and also what other industry um, do you see women and gay men really calling the shots? What other industry do you see embracing the trans community and giving us a voice and not only a voice, but also bringing us to the table to make the decisions and also standing up for what's right? Um, I think it's really, really important in this environment that we're in that we don't sit on the fence, that we work with movements and that we break down why these movements are important for people. And also when we bring things into fashion, which also filters its way, I won't do the Miranda Priestley talk. <laughs> of it's called Cerulean Blue. <laughs> From a pile of stuff. <laughs> it's so true. Fashion filters and impacts into everything. Um, so I'm really, really proud to be part of this industry. And also it's such a community. Everybody supports each other and it's just a joy to be part of. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really, I could not have foreseen my journey. It's not always conscious, you know, what I do, but I think it's, um, I think it's important in a way that, uh, young, especially young trans people and queer people have people in the industry that they can look up to because it really is one of the most empowering industry for so many marginalised people. For sure, for sure. Um, do you remember um, the first show that you ever walked at in London and what was it? I, oh God, I walked in smaller ones, but I think the first like on schedule, I think it was Ziad, it was Ziad Ghanem who was a Lebanese couture designer. And I think it was in 2011, I want to say. But the first London Fashion Week on schedule show was a brand called Art School. And that was in 2000 and, oh God, 18? 
I think. What happened? I'm just intrigued. Like, what's that experience like, you know, when someone's like putting you in clothes and you've got to like strut, you've got a comp, like, what, what is that like? I've just, I, I just really want the listeners to sort of, uh, to visualize it. Well, yeah, walk, walking in shows is always a bit stressful just because there's so many elements and dynamics going on. Um, it's always, you know, extremely exciting, but it's also, um, <laughs> it's a lot. It, there's a lot going on. Um, everybody is working on a very, very tight schedule. Everybody, you know, wants to do the best that they can do with, you know, limited time. Um, there's people everywhere. There's cameras everywhere. You're always on. So, you know, there's always someone taking a picture of you. So, you know, you, you need to like kind of be aware of that. Otherwise, there's going to be like pictures of like you slouching. <laughs> doubled over while you're getting your nails done um but you know the energy is electric and it's so incredible that all of these people come together to provide this one thing that is presented to the public and it just feels like you know you're part of something really really exciting I love walking shows I always get like the worst anxiety just because you know you don't want to let yourself down you don't let the designer down you don't want to let the team down Mm. and also you know you want to get it right because it could provide an opportunity for a you know another opportunity for sure and um you know it's always great to you know be part of a, an amazing moment um so yeah it's it's a, it's a lot it's a lot and every single time that I do a show I'm like I'm not gonna walk again I'm not doing it and then there she is <laughs> and she's back on the runway. back on the runway <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. I love it. I, it's just a lot. But I think that that you know those kind of situations, ev- everything in this industry is a lot. You know, but you you push through, and I think the more that you do it, the more you actually learn to enjoy it. And I think I've got to that mm. point now. Well, I think the the thing that's always impressed me about you, Monroe, is that, again you're able to navigate two spaces I'd say like the political space the activist space because look you're not a politician I know that's not what you do <laughs> um, as as well as no but as, as well as you know fashion and beauty and I think you show that that you know two things can be true at the same time like they're not mutually exclusive things but also uh, they can be linked in a really powerful way and I and yeah and I I'm really wanted to know about your journey of activism in London because you know you're there at marches speaking like you know you're out here doing your thing like you know how we met is you re- I mean look to say that you stick your head above the parapet um like is it would be an understatement and I'm really I'm really uh yeah, I'm just really interested for people to learn about your your kind of activism journey in London. Like, how did it come to be? Well, again, it was kind of a situation that just happened. Um, I started really talking about uh, the the topics that I speak about, mainly gender, sexuality, race, and the way that they intersect out of um, frustration because I wasn't really seeing anybody talk about it, especially in the mainstream. And pretty early on in my career, I just thought, well, there's no point in doing this if I am not able to use it for something um, that is actually of use for society. Um, I, I didn't really, you know... I think very early on when you when you get into the fashion industry um, at the lower levels, you know, the entry levels, you realize that the creativity is often reserved for people that are more established. 
And um, I just thought, well, if I'm not going to get to be creative, then I need to be creative with what I'm doing. And I think that just selling garments and not that I'm, you know, tarnishing what anybody else does. I think it's really important that, you know, it's an industry, they need to sell stuff. But for me, I didn't think that that was going to, you know, fulfill me. I didn't really... I didn't just want to sell clothes. I didn't just want to, you know, be, uh, you know, working with brands for working with brands sake. I thought that it's much more important and much more worthwhile to actually talk about what I'd been through and how I identify and provide visibility for my community who, I mean, there was no black trans women in the media um, when I was growing up and when I started in fashion, there was, you know, there really wasn't that many, hardly any. I mean, I can't really put my finger on uh, a black trans woman in the fashion industry in the UK. And it's not that we, it's not that we didn't exist. It was the fact that the opportunities just weren't there. So like we, we, we were there, but like in terms of, you know, people that were getting in the spotlight, that just wasn't a thing. So I thought, you know what, I need to use this. I need to take this opportunity and not just take it for myself. I need to use this as a platform for my entire community. And I did, and it kind of went left. (laughs) as we both know and as I'm sure a lot of listeners know but it came back and I think that eventually people started seeing who I am what I was doing um why I was doing it and you know the change that could potentially come from it uh but it hasn't always been easy and it is really really hard because you know when you talk about things that people want to keep as they are, people will fight you on it. People will try to character assassinate you, to um, misrepresent you, um, and, you know, deter you. Uh, But you need to plug into your community. You need to um, just keep going because, you know, nothing worthwhile um, comes easy. For sure. I guess I want listeners to know, like, what it is to, like, go to a protest or, 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 or a mm. march, like, especially somewhere busy like London, like what is, what is that experience like, like for you? I think that there's different kinds of protest and different levels of urgency. Um, you know, ultimately pride was born out of protest and, you know, in my opinion, it should still be, it should be more protest than it currently is. I think that it's really been, you know, co-opted by uh, big business and capitalism. Um, and I think it's, you know, maybe we should, you know, have a festival and call it that, but we need to really get back to the political pride, in my opinion, especially as there's so much going on politically with regards to our community, so much divisiveness. Um and, uh, you know, so much threat as well of pulling the community apart. I think in these times, we really need to get back to the um, the element of taking a stand and fighting for what's right rather than, you know, assimilation. Um, so I think that pride is one element of protest, but then there are, you know, the, um, the case-by-case ones, which unfortunately seem to be uh, mounting up. Um, especially with, you know, all of the attacks on trans um, rights and um, the trans community at large. So, uh, yeah, I mean, 
I see protests as a necessity rather than something that I enjoy. I don't enjoy marching on Downing Street, shouting for my rights, but it's important. And I think that it's really the basis of our community. When we aren't given our rights without protest, and we haven't been given our rights without protest, and we won't be given our rights without protest. When we bear that in mind, that really is the basis of our community. Without protest, without um, advocacy, without activism, and without community, grassroots organization services providing relief in crisis. Without all of these elements, our community falls apart. So um, yeah, I, I really think that protest is extremely important, especially, you know, for the fabric of society. Otherwise, we just slip into, um, you know, authoritarianism. So I'm really, really proud of all of these strikes that are going on right now. It's inconvenient, yes, but so is not being able to live within a cost of living crisis. So I am here for it. And I stand with every single person um, striking and protesting right now. I felt I felt the diction in your it. <laughs> <laughs> with a big T, period. With a big T. Who doesn't love the gift of an amazing memory? I love making this podcast because everyone enjoys a good reminisce. And I'm being honest when I say I am thrilled to be working with Instax on this series. An Instax camera or smartphone printer is such a great gift for anybody. So easy to use with three different film sizes, mini, square or wide. And each has its own look and feel. From the colourful Mini 11 to the retro classic design of Mini 40, they are the perfect accessory for every social event in your calendar. So don't just take, give. Head to instax.co.uk to find out more. You speak about community a lot. Where in London did you find your community? Take us on that journey. It has to be East London. In the raves, in the raves. Um, yeah, between Tottenham, Dalston, um, we talked a little bit about Pussy Palace, Babes, the, more recently like Adonis, just like queer raves really, queer nightlife um, is where I found my community. I could see myself in, you know, the trans community is so invisibilized um, or was invisibilized when I first began my transition. So the only time that I would really see other trans women is at the rave or at parties um, or, or nightlife. So that's really where I started being able to build connections with other trans women and, um, you know, know that I wasn't going insane, that these feelings that I had were shared and um, I was able to get advice. I was able to, you know, provide advice and sisterly bonding. Um, but yeah, I think that, I, I mean, I come from club culture and that's always going to be where I, you know, feel at home and um you know I'm a raver till I die yeah <laughs> now talk to me about like your raving looks we touched on it a little bit earlier um because listen Munro you are an exquisitely well-kept woman you are you are a glamazon but listen we've all got to start somewhere I have pictures that I want to be deleted from every device possible yeah 
Listen, it's personal style. It's a journey, you know. Tell me about some of your previous clubbing looks, like your some of your triumphs and some of the ones you're just a bit like, mm, you know what? Yeah, we're not we're not doing that. All right, you know what some of my like mishaps have been. <laughs> tell tell the listeners, darling. Tell them. Well, I went through a, a phase of you know going out in underwear. Um, I think that I I, <laughs> I would often um, you know think it was well. I mean, it was late noughties. So it was very much like kind of, you know, people wore, um, there was that like underwear as outerwear um, trend that was happening. And I really took that by the horns. So um, I really kind of, you know, I mean, I don't regret it. I think that style is an evolution. And if I didn't do it then, then I would probably feel the urge to do it now. And no one needs that. So... But I don't know, I think I've always been very um, open with my style. If I feel a closeness to it or an urge to do it, then I'll do it. And if it isn't what I um, expected, then, you know, at least I tried. There's so many pictures of me on Getty that I would love to have deleted from the internet. (laughs) Baby, (laughs) baby. But you know what? That's like my journey. And you know, did I need to, you know, turn up in like a sparkly um, sequin dress to the NTAs? No, probably I didn't. But I I tried it and um, it didn't really work um, how I wanted it to um, in retrospect. But um, I gave it a go. <laughs> you gave it a go. Uh, when you first sort of like burst onto the to the clubbing scene and like you first started like going out in the area uh where were you shopping for like your looks were you like a vintage diver were like where where were you going to get you know the uh the baby monroe experience i was kind of everywhere i didn't have any money so a lot of it was thrift stores a lot of it was you know really cheap sex shops um <laughs> A lot of it was, um, you know, sharing clothes with girlfriends. Um, High Street Topshop was really big back then. So, um, yeah, kind of Topshop. Oh, my God, Topshop. I mean, obviously, Philip Green, we're we're not here to hate him up. But... (laughs) Any anyone that no, knows the area, or like there is something about, and I think this isn't just London specific, but the big top shop outside top shop. Oxford what, Circus what it was just the place to meet people, right? It was like, okay, we're meeting in town. Where do you want to meet? Outside Big Top Shop? Cool. See you there whatever exactly. time. Like, I mean, I, how, many, how many meetings did you bloody have there? Yeah. And h- how many people would you see coming out of Big Top Shop? That was like, it's kind of real like prime people spotting um, place. I saw Paris Hilton there because I, I used to DJ in the Top Shop every Saturday when I started at One Extra. I'd do my show in the morning and then I'd go to Top Shop and I'd like DJ inside the shop for like four hours. So wow, you get to see like all the quote unquote celebs. You know, listen, Bev, the graft, mm. you know how it is. Um, but um, I remember seeing Paris Hilton shopping in there with her bodyguard and I was like, okay. Who, who, who did you see? Uh, oh God, who did I see? Um, oh God, who did I see? No, because I know a lot of them now. I mean, do you... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, actually, well, I wanted to ask you that, actually. Like, just your experience as somebody, again, who, like, who, who moved here from a town where you felt no representation, where you didn't really feel a massive sense of community to, like, this big old city and this quite, you know, this... Uh, 
larger than life illusion field but kind of real but very bizarre you know like fashion and like media uh-huh. scene um do, do you still get starstruck um and and has it changed your perception of you know celebrity for one for a better phrase uh like getting to know some of these people like what is that what's that been like for you i don't really get starstruck anymore unless it's somebody that i feel um extremely inspired by um you know like if if, if i was to meet beyonce then you know i'd probably melt um if i was to meet madonna then i'd probably burst into flames um doesn't she doesn't she follow you on instagram then i swear madonna follows you on instagram she does and i think um i started to uh yeah i started to i i haven't been the same since that moment that madonna followed me um in <laughs> um, in in a, in a general sense no i don't really everybody's just people you know and we're just Mm-hmm. Um, I think you also just become numb to it because it, it's a, it's a job at the end of the day, and you know a lot of the spaces that you're in, um, it kind of becomes a bonding experience because it's such a surreal experience to navigate a public life, um, and you just kind of, I don't know, you don't really see celebrity in the same way because it's just people doing a job. Um, so, mm-hmm. but unless it's, you know, I think the last person that I got starstruck by, I think Malala. Oh, incredible woman. Incredible. incredible. So I get starstruck by like people that I really, really respect and that are doing incredible things and um, that kind of thing, but not not really just in the general sense. No, I respect it. And honestly, I think, I think I'm the same way too. I think you quickly realise, um, you know, doing this job is that everyone is just trying to do this everyone's just a human being you know it's all an mm. illusion. it is all an illusion don't get me wrong if you sing a great song that i love i'm gonna clap for you if mm. you design cute clothes if you act in a film that i enjoy i'm gonna clap for you but yeah it is the malalas of this world people that do something that is beyond material will always you know yeah. get my get my utmost respect. that's what I was saying to you like so I really respect how you navigate your spaces because yes you're able to turn out a look and beautiful and gorgeous and all of that but the way in which you use it is so powerful and I, I yeah I hope you I hope you understand your power young no, money thank you <laughs> I hope you do. Um, but as you mentioned, public life, that makes me able to segue fairly mm. smoothly into public transport. Let's get into oh, it because, um, no, no, on a serious level, because I'm thinking about um, a wonderful woman by the name of Charlie Craggs. I'm thinking about the ease in which I ask people mm. this on the podcast. So I always say, you know, what's your relationship like with public transport? Do you still take it? Because obviously the people that I've been chatting to are very well known. Some people are just like, I get it knowing that people are going to stop me for a picture or a chat, this, yeah. that, whatever. And just based on what I have been seeing, especially over the past three years in particular, and what I've been learning from other friends' experiences, to get public transport as a trans person, it's not always easy. And I think, you know, me as a cis woman, I, I, I didn't realise actually how much I took mm. that for granted until learning about stories of violence yeah. towards my friends who, who are trans or just anyone sort of outside any sort of binary. Yeah. Like, it's it's pretty mad. How How is it for you? Do, you? do you still get public transport? I don't get public transport just because um, I, it's a privilege to me to not get public transport because 
of my experiences as a trans person getting public transport. And it's a privilege to not use public transport as a trans person because so many trans people experience violence on that method of transport. Um, So it's... um, Yeah, it's really, really hard. I mean, I'm even trying to find my words right now because, you know, I've been followed home from public transport of people that have, you know, seen me on it and um, decided to follow me, uh, whether or not that's at night time or during the day. Um, I've been uh, verbally abused on public transport, been spat at on public transport, been sexually harassed on public transport. So, you know... The moment that I could not get public transport, I opted out. I don't take public transport, not because I don't think that it's safe or that we're not lucky to have it because we are, but um, just because, you know, unfortunately, it's an environment that often uh, exposes um, trans people to uh, people who diminish our humanity that um enact violence on us and yeah I just decided to take myself out of it it's a luxury to be able to do that for sure I really appreciate um your answer because you know again I think it's been a a real sobering and important answer to have on this series because you know most of my guests um yeah I think I think you are yeah you're, you you are my first trans guest and I think you know I've been able to ask everybody within a lens of you know how is it for you like it, it, is it something you do out of convenience because like you because you just like to get from A to B do you cycle or is it a thing of like um yeah like you don't do it because you're not trying to really get clocked or whatever you know talking to you definitely gives another perspective as to it isn't just easy as minding your business on and getting mm. on the train or the bus because yeah some somebody will will have that much hatred in their heart that they would just want to ruin something as simple as you just wanting to like ride through three stops or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I still get the tube if I have to, you know, if I absolutely have to, but I probably don't now just because of the trauma that I experienced back in the day, I probably wouldn't be bothered as much for my gender now, but I'd probably be bothered more if somebody recognized me. Um, But like now it's just like, I don't know, I'd rather not put myself through it just because of the familiar experiences that I've had before. And also, you know, that's still happening to people, like what we saw with Charlie Craggs um, being spat at on the tube and, you know, seeing people be pushed as well um, randomly. It just, yeah, it doesn't feel like a safe environment for me personally. No, I, I, I fully hear you. I fully hear you. And actually that leads me to my next question because I always ask people, you know, if you were in charge mm-hmm. of the city for a day, a month, yeah. a year, like what, what would you what would you do if you were if you were to have a word with Sadiq and you're like, Oi, let me uh let me get in here. Well, you know what? Sadiq is really, really great for our community. But I think I would tell everybody that on the hottest day of the year we have a day off. We have a day off on the hottest day of the year because every single time that bank holiday rolls around in London, it always rains. What is with that? Every single day, every single bank holiday, when it rolls around, it rains. So I would say 
as soon as we can predict when the hottest day is going to be, what a, no matter what day it is, apart from the weekend, we're having that as a holiday. Mm. What is your favourite like music venue like in London? What's been the best? What has been one of the best shows you've ever seen or artists you've seen in the city? Oh my god! Uh, oh god, the best. I mean, Roundhouse is a great live venue. I feel in Camden, I've seen so many incredible acts there from. Banks to years and years to, oh God, so many people. Um, there used to be so many more amazing live venues like the Astoria. Do you remember the Astoria? Well, it's, it's, well, it's now, um, oh God, it's like, well, it's part of the, the, of the train station now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is it here? Is that the same thing? Uh, I mean, there's so many developments that I just, I, I actually can't keep up, but pretty much, I'm pretty sure the Lizzie Lyman story used, used yeah. to be so incredible. Um, that was the first big um, gay night out that I had was like G.A.Y. at the Astoria, <laughs> which um, G.A.Y. is very, very different now, but like back then it was legendary. It was incredible. Okay, where are you going to eat? What's the spot? Oh. Where's your number one? Number one, I had a really nice meal at Luca the other day. A really, 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 really cute Italian in Farringdon. Um, deceivingly quite large, actually. Um, deceptively quite large. Um, but it's beautiful. Beautiful food, beautiful environment, um, setting stunning. Drinks are incredible. And the food is just... God, gorgeous. Lovely, lovely. Oh yeah, if there's anything else you want to express about London city life, like now is your time. I just think London is, you know, I mean, it's it's unmatched in its creativity, I feel. I think that the amount of people with ground-shaking stories that have come from London is just mind-blowing. Um, when I first moved here, just, I think it was around the time that Amy Winehouse was really, really struggling. And just, it was during that moment of um, like Brits really just, you know, taking on the world and, you know, making an imprint um, in culture. And I think when it comes to culture, um, London's unmatched. It's really incredible. There's just so much going on. There's so many different things going on um, at the same time. Um, but everyone really, I feel like it's, I feel like it's the blueprint of the way that the UK really should be. And in so many ways, I think that I'm really, really proud to be a Londoner, to be a Brit, to be a Brit, not so much, but like to be a Londoner, definitely. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how London changes and also um, the more stories that it creates. Well, yeah, here's to those stories. Here's to you. Here's to your book. Let me get the plug in. Transitional. Why not? Why not? Monroe, thank you so thank much. Thank you so, so much, babe. It's been lovely. I love, love you, you so always. Much. Thank you so much for listening to The City. And if you liked it, don't forget, you can tell your mates or one better. If you visited any of the spots we talked about and have a story, let me know on socials. Remember, you can like, rate and subscribe in all the usual podcast places. See you next time. Thank you.